Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European Public Interest Law Firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I host our discussions on the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, frankly speaking, welcomes Dimitri Vern, Team Leader for Sustainability at the European Consumer Organisation, BEUK. This very week, the European Commission has published its new draft anti-greenwashing law, the Directive on Green Claims. Dimitri and Bayuk have been the principal advocates and campaigners for this law, and there is no one better to explain what it means for consumers and for business. Dimitri has served at Bayuk for six years and truly represents European interests, having studied in Germany, France and Belgium. Dimitri, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, before we get on to the directive itself, why do we need it? What is going on with this greenwashing problem? Well, I think everyone in our personal life, we can make the experience of uh, exposure to greenwashing. Whether you go shopping, whether you are trying to plan a trip, you're constantly bombarded with a lot of green claims about how sustainable, how carbon neutral, how green your product or service is. Um, so we have a systemic issue with um, misleading green claims and obvious greenwashing done by companies. Uh, and this is the systemic issue that we're trying to tackle with uh, legislative development to make sure that we clean up the market from misleading green claims and greenwashing, but also give credit to companies which are truly doing an effort to um, make their operation, their products more sustainable and um, and uh, should be acknowledged for that. And um, I saw uh, that you made one comment, carbon neutral is never true, which seems like quite a claim itself. But um, will you not just explain that, perhaps some examples of what you and we are talking about when it comes to greenwashing? Well, uh, carbon neutrality claims, there's there are probably the most striking examples of, of, of greenwashing, at least to, to our perspective as consumer groups. You know, when you're, again, when you're trying to, to plan a trip to book a, a flight, for instance, uh, you're often exposed to um, advertising saying that your flight might be carbon neutral. Or recently, our director or general um, uh, took the example of a carbon neutral banana you know, that she had uh, <laughs> had the chance to, to, to buy in a shop. And I mean, why is it not true? Uh, it's not true because no activity, uh, there is no activity which is carbon neutral. Every product, every company, every service generates CO2 emissions. Um, the, the claim behind, uh, the evidence behind these claims is uh, that companies generally say they are offsetting those emissions. So they're not really doing the work themselves, but they're saying, yeah, to compensate for the emissions linked to your flight, to the product you bought, 
um, we are planting trees somewhere in um, another country, uh, we are um, installing solar panels somewhere, etc. Of course, we have nothing against that, right? This is this is good, but the, there is a problem in the sense that these offsetting schemes are often not very trustworthy. Uh, you cannot, you can never be sure about, you know, uh, the simultaneous effects of carbon reductions linked to these uh, offsetting schemes compared to the activity that you're doing. Often, you know, uh, there are problems with the fact that, for instance, there is no permanence. So the CO2 emission that you release uh, will not be compensated at the same time or for a long enough period. So our point is, there is now no uh, carbon neutral uh, products or services, and consumers should not be um, misled into believing that the activities they are doing could have no impact or maybe even sometimes a positive impact on the climate because this is never true scientifically. Some of my favorite uh, greenwashing ones, there's, there's a deodorant that uh, advertises itself as CFC free and the whole in the ozone layer we know is a big problem, but it was a big problem 40 years ago and CFCs have been banned since 1987. So putting it on a, a deodorant today seems odd. There, there was the fast food company that introduced paper straws to get rid of plastic, but introduced paper straws that couldn't be recycled. Um, there's, there's the, a very famous oil company that rebranded itself, actually did change its name, said it was green, said it was cutting emissions as much as possible, but actually 96% of its capex was still investing in fossil fuels and it was increasing emissions up to 20. 30 when we're supposed to all be, be halving them. Uh, there's, there's the two more. Uh, there's the, uh, uh, a cigarette manufacturer that used organic tobacco and said it was as safe as breathing mountain air, which, um, uh, uh, I have to beg to differ on that one. Uh, and then one the European Commission used in their explainer, which I really liked, which was bee friendly juice. So bees were obviously very, very happy with this juice, but why and how? No idea. No idea at all. So anyway, it's out there. We can have a bit of a smile about it, but it is misleading consumers and it's not helping in terms of us making a more sustainable world. So the European Commission has decided to, to legislate on it. Just, just briefly take us through the key elements of the draft law that was released this week. So the, um, the whole idea of this Green Claims Directive or Green Claims Law is to set rules ex ante, so before the claims are made by companies, to tell companies what uh, and how they should communicate their green claims and according to which conditions. Uh, so basically, the Commission is saying, if a company wants to do a green claims, it has to follow a certain number of steps in terms of evidence that needs to accompany this uh, this claim. For instance, they should make sure that they look at the life cycle of the product, that there is no trade-off between, you know, one positive impact they might be um, tempted to communicate on, uh, which would be offset by a more negative impact. For instance, in the case of your recyclable or non-recyclable paper straws, or I don't know what, you know, this is exactly the type of claims that could not be made because, um, you know, uh, the positive impact is actually, uh, compensated negatively by, uh, by, by another one. 
Um, and then more importantly, so common methodology, strong methodological indications as, as to what um, companies should do. They sh the companies should also release the evidence backing their claims. Meaning it's not kept in a drawer somewhere um, in a headquarter, but this is public so that um, civil society organizations, but also uh, market surveillance authorities can come and check them. Uh, there are also much stronger rules for another big problem on the market, which is the proliferation of labels. You know, it's not just about claims. It's also all the labels out there that you see carbon neutral again or green or saved or be friendly you know um, for these labels new private labels they will have to be um, approved uh, by authorities uh, before being uh, being uh, on the market uh, and finally i would say one of the most important point at least it is for us as consumer groups because we always insist on this it's strong enforcement mechanisms uh, because a law without teeth cannot work. So there are strong penalties. There is an obligation for authorities to do regular checks of what, uh, of the claims made on the market to see whether they comply with these rules. And also an obligation for, um, um, reporting by authorities about their uh, enforcement activities. So all in all, this will, we hope, contribute to cleaning up the market. Of, of this fast, uh, this mushrooming of green claims and un, unsubstantiated labels. That issue about enforcement, many people will say, does this legislation have real teeth? Is it going to worry companies? Will the fines be enough and so on? So what penalties can companies expect if they fall foul of this new law? Well, um, it is a directive, so it will meet, it will need to be transposed in uh, each individual member state of the EU. So that leaves discretion for national authorities in terms of the penalties they will have to implement. But let's say that the Commission um, insists they should be high enough, dissuasive, and proportionate, uh, and they also foresee other possibilities. For instance, um, um, banning companies which have been uh, found to doing uh, really misleading green claims from public um public um market for a, you know for 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 a time um this kind of thing so real deterrence hopefully uh for these companies not to 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 engage in such misleading activities and there's this alternative concept that people started talking about green hushing not green washing but green hushing that all of the penalties whether it's this new law or the the other uh, legislative activities in Europe and elsewhere around reporting and disclosure, for example, that what it's going to do is to drive companies back to just not not making green claims because they're so frightened of of um, uh, saying something that that gets caught out. I'm perhaps slightly exaggerating for the point of the question, um, but nevertheless, uh, that it, it won't serve. The consumer interest it won't serve the world's interest if we take attention away from the environment and that uh, there is uh, perhaps that pers perverse effect built in here how would you respond to that well i would say the exact opposite richard <laughs> you know uh, if a company does not feel certain enough about an environmental claim they want to make on a product it's safer and better for everyone that they don't do this claim right 
because our, our our whole purpose is to drive more sustainable consumption, right? Um, yeah. So we should not, you know, uh, leave it uh, to you know leave it open for companies to mis mislead their clients about the green credential of 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 their products or services when they are not sure themselves. So if this com if this law, you know, before coming to enforcement, let's say, maybe mm. that will be the first enforcement benefit of this law is to act as a deterrent because that would put more administrative burden on companies wishing to make claims. And we can hope that only those companies which really have something to sell in terms of um, better, more sustainable products will engage in this process to really stand out uh, in the eyes of consumers. So I think everyone will gain from this. The best companies out there and um, consumers looking for to consume more sustainably. There must be big money behind this because, you, for example, you can't walk through an airport nowadays without poster after poster advertising the green credentials of one company or another. Labels, uh, it, it just jumps out at you, doesn't it? Now, companies wouldn't be doing that if they didn't perceive it as being a marketing advantage to do so. So, um, how big a how big a marketing benefit is there for companies for do it for doing this as as you see it? Well, I cannot give you any number, but it is clear uh, from surveys, from uh, behavioral research, from or um, national consumer groups uh, reports that uh, consumers are increasingly looking to consume more sustainably. And we, we've seen um, an exponential increase in um, green and environmental marketing in the last few years. So there is a strong interest for companies to, uh, to, 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 to market their products as green because there is a strong consumer demand for that. Um, and, uh, and it leads to excesses, you know, with uh, many companies marketing uh, unfairly about the green credentials of their products. So it's clear when you go through airports, go through supermarkets, shop online, whatever the activity that you're doing, uh, that companies have clearly understood the expectations of consumers with regards to more sustainable consumption. And I wonder, you're talking there about the benefit to consumers, but is there a benefit to companies too in that the, the ones that are making the genuine claim, claims they're investing um, for a new sustainable future, uh, they're doing the hard work, they are substantiating what they do. Are those companies disadvantaged and will actually benefit if there is a uh, a proof now required for, for green claims? Where do you stand on that? Absolutely. We're all into, you know, like those companies which are doing the efforts, are reducing their emissions or their carbon and environmental footprints, um, should get, get credit for this. Uh, so, you know, like, it, 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 that's the reason why we have nothing against uh, green or environmental marketing as such. We, we have something against green and environmental marketing when it's misleading and when it's not based on true efforts. So we're all in for, um, uh, you know, uh, best in class, uh, to get credits and re to be rewarded for um, for doing these efforts in the eyes of consumers, and that's also one of the effects we'll hope this uh, this law will have uh, to to really promote um, you know those companies which are which are doing the efforts. And and also, and I'm sure you'll understand it. Or frankly speaking, we we look at this through company eyes as well as stakeholder eyes. Some companies might 
say all well and good but why do we need the new legislation for this you've already in europe got the unfair commercial practices directive which uh, seeks to call out uh, wrongful advertising why not simply apply for that i think there have been uh, greek claims that have been prosecuted under that um, why do you need a whole new directive just on this is it perhaps disproportionate to the size of the problem how do you respond to that well, I'd say it's very proportionate in the sense that it's closing a gap. The Unfair Commercial Practices Directive indeed already covers quite a lot, misleading communication to consumers and uh, misleading um, green claims. And actually, it's also being revised at the moment to strengthen its provisions regarding uh, misleading uh, green advertising. The main problem with the Unfair Commercial Practices Directive is that it comes into action once the harm is done. Meaning, uh, you can find a company or sue a company for misleading advertising, but by, but by the time this company will uh, eventually be fine, the claim will have been on the market for one year, two years maybe, um, and will have already uh, misled a lot of consumers out there. Um, so, the main benefit or the main added value of this new green, green claims law or green claims directive is to uh, to act as a preventive tool, to add a filter, if you'd like, before the claims are made, to make sure that uh, we tackle the problem at the source and that unsubstantiated green claims, they don't make it to the market in the first place. Um, I have to say, who uh, could disagree with that? <laughs> Now, uh, we, we don't want to get into all of the technical detail, but um, I'd like to drill down a little bit because this, uh, or the intention to produce this directive was first announced by um, the Commission when they launched the Green Deal back in 2019. It's taken four years for it to come out of the Commission. And I know there's been uh, a specific argument going on about product in environmental footprint that you've also been very involved with. So just tell us a bit of the story about why it was delayed, but also what's what's come out of all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, indeed, this, this directive has been, uh, this proposal has been delayed um, a couple of times. It was initially supposed to, um, to come out last year already. Um, the, the, the main reason behind it, of course, you know, I'm not in the in uh, you know in uh, in backstage so i don't know about all the discussions but we know that one of the main reasons behind that was the discussion about whether the commission would ask companies to use this product environmental footprint methodology to substantiate all their claims basically this product environmental footprint methodology is a life cycle assessment methodologies which is looking at the wide range of sustainability impacts uh, and which has been developed by the commission in the past 10 years so it is really serious and uh, robust work and initially the commission wanted to use this methodology as you know the main instrument uh, for companies to substantiate their green claims now, several uh, civil society organizations, but also companies, also member states, uh, flagged that uh, although this methodology had a lot of merits, it failed to capture well enough uh, some of the impacts that some key sectors have on the environment. 
if I want, if I can give you a concrete example, textiles, which is even acknowledged in the in the directive, um, the product environmental footprint methodology did not doesn't have um, strong enough criteria on the release of microplastics, which we know is a major impact of textile on the environment, or on biodiversity loss. Um, so there was a whole thinking about. Um, using a methodology or opening the door to alternative methodology to make sure that we just don't impose something that wouldn't work for everyone. And the choice that was made by the commission is, I think, rather uh, smart and flexible. Um, they, they, they opened the door to alternative methodology by setting out though a series of criteria which all companies should follow uh, when um, um, substantiating their claims. Um, and, um, and another important element is that they will, um, the, the evidence that will be put out by companies need to be um, endorsed and verified by an independent third party. So it's um, it's it's a good choice. I think we we went back from using a single instrument to being a bit more flexible, um, and this is this is a this is a good idea because uh, because you know we are talking about so many different sectors that uh, one one instrument could not work on its own. And you've got some views about how uh, guidance will be brought forward for different sectors. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so that's, as I said, there are different layers, so to say. There, there are the different criteria that every company making claims need to follow. You know, um, for instance, using a life cycle assessment, uh, making sure that there are no trade-offs between different environmental impacts, you know, these kind of things. Um, then the commission keeps the possibility open, though, for most problematic sectors to develop uh, common methodologies. For instance, what we're calling for, and we'll see whether, uh, whether the commission, uh, uh, takes it uh, forward, but would be for, for, um, a common life cycle assessment methodology to be developed for the food sector or for the, or for the textile sector. And this will happen either through, um, delegated acts, so spe very specific and technical legislation that the commission will come up with as a follow-up of this law, or through a sector-specific legislation. For instance, in the food sector, um, normally by the end of the year, the commission should come out with a, um, sustainable food, um, uh, law, uh, which will also set out some, uh, conditions for, um, for green claims in food. And, and uh, some of the companies listening will say, is the science good enough? You know, we want to substantiate the claims, of course, but is, th is there too much vagary around the science that make it difficult for us to, to do this? What do you say to that? Well, first, uh, if companies don't feel uh, safe enough about uh, about the science, maybe it's best to abstain from making any green claim. You know, first for, first general idea. But then I would say that obviously, you know, uh, there will always be shortcomings, imperfections, and uh, we we won't find a perfect methodology capturing perfectly all environmental impacts. 
but we can strive to do that though um we can we we have done already you know the product environmental footprint method which you were referring to um earlier does already work very well for household appliances for instance for for this kind of uh, products you can use it today it works perfectly well uh, for other sectors i would say the way forward is for the commission to keep working they already do so right it's not uh, it's not new um and and involve i would say this is very important involve um the industry so interested uh, companies member states but also civil society in coming up with common methodologies uh, this would be the best way for us to ensure a democratic and um, accountable uh, system to uh, to back up green claims. And I think that's something that as this goes through the European Parliament and Council in the next weeks and months, I expect that to be one of the issues issues discussed. And I know you'll be campaigning for it, for it within Brussels. Uh, one interesting bit of this uh, legislation is it gives the opportunities not just for national authorities, governments, regulators, in Europe to bring cases, but for consumers themselves or groups of consumers, group or representative legal actions. Um, uh, do you think that's going to be significant? Are you and your members going to be taking cases on the basis of this directive? We certainly hope to do so. Uh, and this is, uh, this is something, you know, um, and this is also an important part of, of the enforcement of, of this law. You know, we should not put all our eggs in the same basket and expect everything to happen uh, from authorities with public enforcement. We also need the uh, private enforcement arm with, um, with civil society organizations such as consumer groups reporting uh, the most misleading green claims uh, on the market. And so uh, I can only say that um, uh, this is a welcome step and this is um, a possibility which we will uh, use uh, in the future. We're a bit, uh, you know, um, uh, how, how could I say that, but um, market, uh, the watchdogs on the market, you know, uh, and, and this is uh, this is something that we already do and it, that we plan to, to expand based on this directive. And of course, it's your role, consumer organizations, your role is to be watchdogs. Um, that whole issue of strategic litigation, whether it's in this context or others, is obviously it's a difficult one for companies, but it is rising. There's no doubt about that. And we do intend to return to that here on Frankly Speaking. Now, in this package was another proposal that was, if not hidden away, it's been less talked about, but it's for, it's called empowering consumers uh, uh, with product durability. So that's a mouthful. I've also uh, seen it written as the right to repair so just tell us a bit about that associated proposal. Well, um, this whole package has been sold as the consumer package. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the right uh, denomination because uh, the green claims uh, and greenwashing is a major um, consumer problem. But also the short lifespan of products, the lack of repairability of product, um, is a problem for consumers in the sense that uh, it puts a strain on your resources, but also on the planet's resources. Uh, so the Commission has indeed uh, released a proposal um, on, um, like, introducing a right to repair, which will um, actually promote repair over replacement for products after they've been under the after the legal guarantee will have expired. 
right? So there will be uh, some new obligations for um, companies to take back products and repair them when it's technically feasible instead of uh, replacing them. Uh, so this is a welcome step. Um, I can tell you that my colleagues working in the consumer rights team are a bit skeptical, though, because they would have liked to see rather an extension of the legal guarantee, uh, especially based maybe on uh, product-specific criteria. For instance, you would expect a washing machine or a fridge to last more than the two years that are the current legal guarantee, right? Um, however, we also want to promote repair, so we, 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 we plan to accompany this uh, legislation as well. Dimitri, uh You've given us a brilliant insight into this, but before we close, um, I want to ask you a sort of broader question. So, frankly speaking, it's a, a broad responsible business podcast. We look at, at uh, sustainability, we look at business and human rights, we look at sustainable finance. Uh, and there's a sort of family of people in businesses and outside who are debating these issues and trying to get it right as far as we all possibly can. And I sometimes wonder how far the consumer movement is really committed to this and really part of it. Um, I don't mean that in any um, uh, critical way about Bayouk, who I deeply respect and in my years in Brussels um, was proud to work with. But you're the sustainability leader in Bayouk. So I think you are the person to ask how much do consumers and how much does the consumer movement really care about business responsibility? Well, um, let me, Richard, let me give you the line we generally give on everything related to Green Deal topics, uh, mainly, right? We, we know the transition we're going into, we're striving for, requires massive changes um, from a systemic point of view, massive technological changes, massive behavioral changes. Uh, so it's, it's really a, a revolution. Uh, and we also fully acknowledge as consumers, uh, organization that, uh, individual consumers clearly have their role and their work to do there, you know, and most of them are very much aware of this. If you look at surveys, et cetera, it's, it's clear people know there is an urgent need for action. However, what we also say is that uh, the responsibility of the transition should not be um, put on consumer, on individual consumers only or mainly. Um, if we want the transition to be successful, to, to happen, uh, we, we absolutely need these uh, changes and the alternatives to, um, to unsustainable lifestyle to become uh, available, affordable and attractive. And as BEUC, as consumer groups, we're, we're, we're trying to work on regulatory changes to make sure these changes uh, happen. And, and the greenwashing, green claims uh, debate we just had is, is a case in point, right? For, to, to illustrate what, what we mean. You, you cannot expect individual people uh, when they're shopping in a supermarket uh, or online, um, and are bombarded with claims which you perfectly described from, all kinds of products and services to figure out by themselves what is trustworthy, what is a not or too vague claims, whether this carbon neutral or carbon offsets really does deliver the carbon emissions reduction that we, we, we need. 
it's a full-time job to do this and and i mean the amount of work which ha which, which has been put in the in the preparation of this directive just shows that um so this is why we need to tackle the problem at the source uh, and clean up the market and you know this is a bit our our thinking our general mantra on green deal topics consumers have a responsibility but it's a responsibility of authorities and companies to provide the right framework conditions for more sustainable consumption to be even possible, right? Brilliant answer, because so often we have that debate about what's the responsibility of the individual, should we fly less, eat a bit less meat, recycle more. Um, uh, but if, if we only focus on that individual contribution and not on the systemic contacts, which you've been talking about there, Dimitri, um, uh, we might miss or in, in effect will make the difference, what in effect is going to enable individuals and citizens to make those changes in, in our own behaviours. Dimitri, you've been absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's a, like all these um, bits of uh, legislation, they're complicated and you've given us a really accessible insight into what this one means, but you've also um, uh, put the case of why it's needed uh, and I have to say, it is Bayouk working hand in hand with the European Commission that has been instrumental in getting getting this law out. Uh, so I congratulate you as well as thank you for being part of this Frankly Speaking podcast. Sadly, we have come to the end of the podcast. We'd like to invite all of our audience to send us your feedback to Frankly Speaking at frankbold.org and to share this conversation. You've been listening. So frankly speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's responsible companies section on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you again to Dimitri Verne and to all of you for joining us. Do join us again next time and goodbye. Mm -hmm.